Welcome to Visiting Professors. This is medical oncologist Dr. Neil Love. As usual, we ask the clinical investigator, in this case, prostate cancer researcher Dr. Matt Smith, to make a special education rounds with a physician in practice. For today, Dr. Stacy Leibowitz from Morristown, New Jersey, who met Matt when she was a fellow at Dana-Farber previously. And to begin, Dr. Leibowitz discussed the man who presented with metastatic disease. This is a 74-year-old gentleman who presented in April 2010 with a PSA of 24, and biopsies showed 12 out of 12 cores with high-grade prostate cancer, Gleason 8 and 9, involving all the cores. And unfortunately, bone scan at diagnosis showed metastases, and he was started on androgen ablation with LHRH agonist in May 2010 under the care of his urologist. And he had a good response initially, but relatively brief response. And by November, his PSA started to rise and bicalutamide was added. Unfortunately, he had no response to this. And by May of this year, uh, about a year after starting therapy, his PSA was all the way up to 24. And he was sent to see me at that time for an initial consultation. And although he complains of fatigue, he's feeling relatively well, but his PSA is climbing rapidly. The day I saw him initially, his PSA was up to 45. I ordered restaging scans, which confirmed bony metastases. And I tried one month of low-dose ketoconazole, and one month later, his LFTs had gone up, and his PSA had gone up as well, now up to 65. So his ketoconazole was discontinued, and because of the bony metastases that I confirmed on scan, I initiated him on denosumab. So what's his current situation? So He's currently, again, asymptomatic other than complaining of fatigue, and we've started to talk about treatment options, and given the rapidly rising PSA, I've started discussing with him consideration for starting chemotherapy with docetaxel. And what's his general health status, comorbidities, lifestyle? He's in excellent health. He has minimal other comorbidities. He is fully functional. He's a retired financial planner. And he's single. He lives by himself, although he has a supportive sister, primarily, who comes with him to his visits. But he's really looking to be aggressive in his therapy. And Matt, how do you see this situation and the choice that he's facing right now? Obviously, docetaxel would be out there, but maybe another possibility would be Cipulus-OT. Yeah, so this is a really classic case and a very common situation. So someone with a screened cancer, they've been very well managed. They now have detectable metastatic disease with minimal symptoms. So this is kind of where we want to identify patients. There are more therapeutic options now, one of which is Cipulus LT versus chemotherapy. In this particular man, although he fits the labeled indication for Cipulus LT, one of the concerns is that the tempo of his disease appears rather brisk, rapidly rising PSA, fairly substantial volume of metastatic disease on bone scan. So He's a candidate for Cipulus LT, but I don't think an ideal candidate because of the concerns that he'll actually have a fairly short time till clinical progression. In other words, may not kind of have time to conveniently get in Cipulus LT before he becomes symptomatic. Stacy, what's your experience been with accessing Cipulus LT? Have you put patients on it? Yeah. You know, initially, we were one of the first sites, I think, at my office to have access in the community practice because our office is so close to the main facility in Mars Plains. We're in Marstown. So we actually got access very early on after approval. And initially, it was very difficult. 
and insurance companies were making us jump through a lot of hoops, and it was taking well over a month, if not more, to try and get approval. So it was slow going. Recently, it's gotten much easier. Patients are getting approved within a week or two. And so we've been able to more successfully administer it. And within the last month or two, we've treated more patients. I now have three patients who have successfully completed the therapy. And what about the possibility, Matt, of considering cipulucyl-T after docetaxel? So in the IMPACT trial, some of the patients, in fact, had received prior docetaxel. So it would be consistent with the available data to use cipulucyl-T post-chemotherapy, although my strong preference would be to use it prior to chemotherapy for a variety of reasons. First and foremost, if you have the opportunity to identify patients before they develop symptoms, it's desirable to give them cipulucyl-T. And from a sort of quality of life perspective, you might prefer to defer treatment with chemotherapy that may have greater impact on their function. The other part is while there were post-docetaxel patients in the IMPACT trial, there were relatively few of them. So most of the benefit that was observed was, of course, driven by patients who are chemotherapy naive. So given the choice, I'd rather give Cipulus-LT prior to chemotherapy in appropriately selected patients. What was your impression of meeting him today, Matt? And how do you think he'll do on chemotherapy? You know, the men that we saw today fell into a variety of sort of what I'd say situations that I often see in my own clinical practice. And this gentleman, my sense was, sort of had a substantial amount of anxiety about his disease and at the same time was concerned about the impact of treatment on his quality of life. And it's hard to have it exactly both ways, particularly when we're talking about chemotherapy. So to be aggressive with treatment, certainly desirable from this man's perspective, but he also had concerns about how that might impact his quality of life. He was a very physically fit guy, high functional status, high performance status. I think he's likely to tolerate chemotherapy particularly well. What about the use of bone-targeted treatment here and the decision to start denosumab? So it's a nice situation where we have the results of a large head-to-head trial, about 2,000 patients with metastatic CRPC were randomly assigned to denosumab or zoledronic acid, and in both cases received you know, additional best supportive care with other agents according to the discretion of the treating physician. And in that large study, Denosumab proved superior to zoledronic acid for reduction of skeletal-related events, and on that basis has been approved for use in prostate cancer and other solid tumors. And so I think this represents good practice when initiating bone-targeted therapy. Denosumab is an excellent choice. Stacy, what's your experience been with denosumab, and how would you compare it you know, in terms of ease or difficulty of use compared to ZDA? It's been relatively limited, my experience. In our practice, we've been a little bit hesitant to switch patients over because of the higher cost and patients who have been doing well on zolendronic acid, we haven't wanted to switch. The main patients who I've been using it in are people whose creatinines have been climbing who I don't feel comfortable using a bisphosphonate. Although I will say now, like with this gentleman, I am beginning it as the initial agent more and more. It's been relatively easy and easy to administer. The only catch is that it is every four weeks, and for some of these patients, they don't need to come in that often. And so from a scheduling standpoint, they need to come into the office now more regularly as compared to with zolondronic acid. Matt, can you talk about the data you presented at AUA looking at the question of whether or not denosumab decreases metastases? Certainly. So, you know, a major unmet medical need in prostate cancer is the prevention of bone metastases. We have some evidence from some studies in breast cancer that bisphosphonates 
in the adjuvant setting, for example, reduced the incidence of bone metastasis in women with high-risk breast cancer and prostate cancer disease that much more commonly affects the bone. We had no really good data to support use of bone-directed therapy, really because the studies that have been performed were few and inadequately powered to ask those questions. So we recently completed a global randomized controlled trial of denosumab to prevent bone metastasis in men with high-risk castration-resistant prostate cancer. So this was a approximately 1,500 patient global trial of men with CRPC and no detectable bone metastases, but at high risk for progression based on PSA elevation or rapid rate of PSA rise. And in that study, we showed that compared to placebo, denosumab significantly increased bone metastasis-free survival. And the sponsor has recently filed for use in that indication. Can you talk a little bit more about the numbers involved and what you think the mechanisms might be? So the study was designed based on earlier observations of an aborted trial of zoledronic acid. So we defined high risk in this setting as a PSA greater than 8 or a PSA doubling time less than 10 months. So this corresponds roughly to about the top half of risk with men with non-metastatic CRPC. Big undertaking conducted in more than 30 countries and about 1,500 patients. And what we observed in the studies, major for top-line observations, was a significant improvement in bone metastasis-free survival with a hazard ratio of 0.85 and a significant delay in time to first bone metastasis as well. We also saw an improvement in time to first symptomatic bone metastasis as supportive evidence of sort of patient benefit or quality of life benefit. So we think that this really is an important proof of principle and may represent a new useful therapy in patients with this unmet medical need. And where do you see things heading in this regard? Is this enough evidence for you, assuming you could get it paid for to take action, or you think more data is needed? Well, in my view, this is the definitive trial. And given the really remarkable potency of denosumab as an osteoclast-targeted therapy, I think we're seeing what can be accomplished by this approach. So what we really, in a way, this study shows is the contribution of the bone microenvironment to progression of bone metastasis. This is sort of the central part of tumor-bone interactions, the whole seed and soil hypothesis of why prostate cancer preferentially metastasizes to bone. And the question we attempted to address in this study was, by altering the bone microenvironment and preventing bone turnover, can you delay the onset of metastasis? So it's very gratifying to see that we've succeeded there. And so I think that this will represent an important part of care, multi-targeted care, right? So we can now target the microenvironment and impact cancer outcomes. And as we've already discussed today, and we'll discuss some more, there's a variety of other emerging and recently approved therapies that are very effective anti-neoplastic therapies. I'm, I'm hopeful that this combination approaches will really substantially improve the outcomes for individual men. Stacy, I was wondering if I could ask Matt, can you comment on, we talked a little bit about in the office, but choosing between denosumab and zoledronic acid, and if people are already on zoledronic acid, what schedule do you use? How often is often enough? So to limit, because some of these men can be on it for years, so to limit the side effects but have the benefit at the same time. So here's my take on this. 
Denosumab and zoledronic acid have been shown to reduce skeletal-related events in men with metastatic CRPC. We do not know the optimal dose or schedule of either agent. In the head-to-head trial, denosumab is superior to zoledronic acid as first-line bone-targeted therapy. So as you did in that first patient, I support the use of denosumab as the preferred agent to prevent SREs for men initiating bone-targeted therapy. I would conform the schedule of their treatment to issues of convenience. So if they're on every three-week docetaxel, I, for example, would treat them every other cycle of docetaxel, not bring them in on off weeks to treat them exactly monthly. We can never know whether that will achieve the same efficacy, but you have to be practical. For men who are doing fine on zoledronic acid, I would continue their treatment. I would not switch them to DMAB unless there was concerns about adverse effects, particularly renal toxicity, or if they've experienced a skeletal-related event despite that treatment, in which case you would then have a moment in which it would make sense to switch therapy. And how often is often enough? What's the minimum effective schedule? We just don't know. So for someone whose disease is severe enough that they're requiring chemotherapy, I'd be treating them every cycle or every other cycle. If they're on a chemotherapy holiday, meaning their disease is under adequate control, I'd treat them every three months. And are you checking vitamin D levels in all your patients? I do check vitamin D levels. The concern in this part of the world, even more so in Boston, vitamin D deficiency is very common. I recommend all patients take one to 2,000 IU of supplemental vitamin D a day. But more than that, I would check their vitamin D level before they start treatment if possible because severe vitamin D deficiency can be associated with refractory hypocalcemia following treatment with either one of these agents. What do we know about ONJ and denosumab, Matt? And do you believe that preventive dentistry is helpful? I do. So I think this is, of course, a real issue. ONJ, first well described in patients who receive zoledronic acid. It's worth noting, though, that was not picked up in the original phase three trials. And that just speaks to the nature of the importance of ongoing surveillance after drugs are marketed. There was hope that DMAB would not have ONJ because it has a different mechanism of action and does not accumulate in bone. That we observe ONJ at a similar rate to zoledronic acid leads me and others to conclude that potent osteoclast inhibition, regardless of mechanism, may result in ONJ. So it's something we need to be mindful of. And that includes oral exam by the treating physician and preventive dentistry in patients who have not had regular dental care who are a particular issue. So those issues should be addressed before the patient starts treatment. And then you need to take care in evaluating patients during their therapy, particularly those who complain of dental pain. I was just kind of mulling over what you were talking about in terms of what you did present. Could you describe a patient who has PSA-only disease where if you could get it paid for, you'd want to go ahead and use denosumab? Denosumab for metastasis prevention or fracture prevention? Metastasis prevention. So the patients that we studied were men with sort of early CRPC, so no detectable metastatic disease to bone, but evidence of castrate-resistant disease based on rising PSA. Now, just like all other parts of the disease, there's a spectrum of risk, and we studied the men at highest risk, and those were men with a PSA greater than 8 or PSA doubling time less than 10 months. So that corresponds roughly to the top half of risk, and that's the setting we showed the benefit, and that's where we hope the drug will be approved. And it's certainly a setting where I'd consider that a valuable therapeutic option. How long do you envision these patients could be on denosumab for years? 
and you have concerns about the duration of therapy and at some point, would you stop it or space it out? Or what is your view on yeah, them? Yes, great question. So it's very similar to the issue in metastatic disease, which is we do not know the optimal dose and schedule, or said a different way, we don't know the minimal effective dose and schedule. And truth be known, it probably varies for different patients. And the reason we chose the monthly schedule, so basically the same dose and schedule is used in metastatic disease, is, look, there's been no therapy approved to prevent metastases. We first and foremost wanted to show benefit, and we did that. Now, having accomplished that, I think it is a fair question to ask whether you could achieve similar benefit with less drug, either smaller dose or less frequent schedule. Those are all testable questions, but we simply won't have the answers for years.